Turn with me to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 2, 1 through 3. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Man, good job, Liz. You did that really well. Pastor Josh, thanks for the song again, man. One of my favorites. Brian, crushed it, man. Good announcements. Would you pray with me? Father, we lift you high today. We say that you are the exalted one. You're the reason why we sing, God, the reason why we gather. Jesus, we thank you for giving us a day every week that we can rest in you and in fellowship with the rest of our family in you, Lord. Lord, we come together today. We're mindful of those who aren't with us. Jesus, we think of those who are too sick to make it out. Jesus, would you minister to their spirits, to their bodies, bring them health. Jesus, we think of our friends and family deployed on a business trip. Jesus, would you be with them, bring them a brother or sister in Christ, encourage them, bring them back safely to us. And Lord, we think about those who have walked away from you, Lord, and we ask that you would be working in their hearts to bring them back. Jesus, right now as we gather to dive into your word, we ask that we would be men and women who not only hear your word, but actually live it out and do it, Lord that we would be changed by this encounter with you. And Lord, I just commit myself to you as your, your servant today. I ask that you would speak through me by the power of your spirit, words that are true and loving and right, edifying. Lord, that we would all walk away here changed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not easy being a mom. I don't really know from experience, but I do live with one. And I see what you guys go through, and it's tough. So perhaps you can relate to the young mom who set an an appointment with her pastor to confess all of her shortcomings as a Christian mom. It's a Tuesday morning. She walks into the pastor's office. Good morning, pastor. She says kind of tiredly, good morning. She plops down in his chair, and she lets her confession roll. She says, well, pastor... You see, I, I can't do as much for the Lord anymore. I, I used to help out in the nursery every week, but now I've got a young baby of my own and the crying, I just can't take any more kids on Sunday. I, I can't help out anymore. Pastor thinks about it, wonders about their nursery program, and, and he graciously says, you're forgiven. Okay, well, well, second thing, Pastor, Saturday mornings, I used to help out in the church's homeless program and feeding them and that's my only day to sleep in now. My husband's home, and, and I, I just want to sleep. I'm so tired. I can't help out anymore. Pastor wonders about those homeless people, how they're going to get food. And Okay, you're forgiven, he says. Well, Pastor, I, I got one more. Get ready, Pastor. Okay, he's ready. She says, every morning, I try. I set my alarm clock 30 minutes early before the baby's supposed to wake up so I can get up and I can read my Bible and have this quiet moment with Jesus. But when my alarm goes off, it wakes up the baby, and then I just spend it with the crying baby for 30 minutes. I can't even spend time with God anymore. Man, the pastor's really starting to get worried about this woman. So he he thinks, he considers, he looks at her, and he says, before, 
you were only learning about Christianity. But now, you're living it. You see, this isn't a mother's only club, though. This is for the dads out there, for the adults, for the children, for the, the teachers and the students, the young and the old. When the realities of life come crushing in and you're trying to do everything, but you feel like you're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. And you wonder, am I doing enough for you, Jesus? And it's exactly in this moment that Jesus has invited you to reveal his glory. Today, we're in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus' first recorded miracle And as we work our way through this passage, we're going to discover three ways that God has invited you to reveal His glory in the ordinary. But before we get to our passage, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on the Gospel of John. It's different from the other Gospels and that focuses on the deity of Christ. And John records more of Christ's words as opposed to focusing on His actions. But what John does here is he records seven actions, seven miraculous signs that Jesus does throughout his gospel. The first one is what we're looking at today. Jesus turns water into wine. Spoiler alert. He does it. It does turn into wine. Um, But more importantly than what these miracles are is what they signify. You see, there are four Greek words that we translate into the English as miracle. The one I oftentimes think of is the Greek word dynamis. And it's like, God's so powerful, he's strong, he can do anything. Wow, look how powerful God is. That's not the word that John uses in this gospel. He uses the Greek word simeon, which I think is best translated as a sign miracle, something that points to something greater. It's like when you're going up Saddle Road and you're on your way to work and you see the sign that says H3 West. And you're like, oh, i got to turn there. And so you turn on to H3 West. The sign isn't the road, but it, it tells you, hey, take a left. It points to something greater. And that's what John is saying here. He's saying Jesus did these miraculous things that point to something greater than the miracle itself. So what do they point to? Well, John doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says that these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These signs are about your life in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the story today. We're going to be in in this passage pretty much for the next 20 minutes. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the story in its entirety to you. And as bizarre as it sounds, I know when we read Scripture this long in, in sermons, my mind can sometimes just blank out, oh, I know this story already. And while it is a familiar passage to many of us, let's try to, let's try to picture the story in its entirety. Because this is, we know that God's speaking to us here. So I'm going to read it from the message. It's a paraphrase. Um, if you have that version, you can read along with me, or you can just close your eyes and you can try to see the story itself. I don't have a message Bible, but I printed it out. So let's read the story. John chapter 2. Here we go. Three days later, there was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. When they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, they're just about out of wine. Jesus said, is that any of our business, mother, yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. She went ahead anyway, telling the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. 
Six stone water pots were there, used by the Jews for ritual washings. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now, fill your pitchers and take them to the host, Jesus said, and they did. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, although he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, they knew, he called out to the bridegroom, everybody I know begins with their finest wines, and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff, but you've saved the best till now. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So here we have his first sign, water to wine in Cana at a wedding. But why this one? I mean, God's had all eternity past to think about what his first miracle would be here on earth, and he chooses this one. And why is it at a wedding? And what's significant about it being at Cana? Well, let's look at the story and see some of the details. The setting, the setting, we are in Cana. Where in the world is Cana? Well, it's a very small, insignificant town, and we don't have any detailed records of its exact location. But we do know that it's in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee, where Jesus grew up. But what we see is that it's pretty much just an ordinary town. But something extraordinary is going on here. A Jewish wedding. Now, I've asked this question in the first two services. Let me ask it again. Who's ever been to a Jewish wedding? Raise your hand. Whoa, you guys are the first service to raise your hand. That's awesome. I've never been to a Jewish wedding, but growing up, my parents made me watch Filler on the Roof. <laughs> I had nightmares for weeks. But I did learn a few things about Jewish weddings, so now I'm an expert. They dance on each other's shoulders, they break glasses, and these parties go on for a week. They know how to party. My wedding reception, we paid by the hour. We were out of there by 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> Not them. The characters of the story. We got our main characters, Jesus, servants, Mary. And we have a supporting cast. We have the head waiter and the bridegroom. Interesting enough, we don't see the bride. Kind of weird. I don't know why. But now for the plot. With any good plot, there's a conflict. It's a Jewish wedding. Everybody's having fun, but... They run out of wine. Huh, that's kapu in this culture. That's, that's weird. And I know that we lose some of the significance in our culture. Okay, they run out of wine, go to Target, get some more. But for them, it was a big deal. And I was trying to think of a way I could put it in our, in our cultural context. And I'm a youth pastor, so I thought of this one. The Wi-Fi just went out. Oh, no, can't update my story. This was a big deal to these people. And even if they had money, they were out in the middle of nowhere. They didn't have convenience stores to run to. They couldn't even bottle wine back then. They didn't have refrigeration. If they wanted more wine, they'd have to get a farmer to go out into his vineyard with a cart, pick grapes that were ripe, fill up that cart. He'd wheel that cart back to his wine press, which was a couple holes in the ground. He'd dump out the grapes. He'd take off his sandals, start squishing the grapes with his bare feet. And as the juices came out of those grapes, they would start interacting with the wild yeast that was on the grape skins. And it would start fermenting. And that juice would then flow down into a second cistern where it would sit for a week in the open air. And it would continue to ferment. And then, and only then, could the farmer come back with new wineskins and he could fill up that wine. Or was it grape juice? 
It was fermenting for a week. It was definitely alcoholic. But it took a week to happen. This was a big deal for them. You can go ahead and take out your sermon outlines. We're going to be discussing the first way that Jesus has invited you to reveal his glory in the ordinary. I'm going to give you the answer, then we're going to talk about it for a little bit. So the first way Jesus has invited you to reveal his glory is this. Your trust in adversity reveals Christ's glory. Your trust in adversity reveals Christ's glory. To partner with God to reveal his glory, you must trust him in the hardships. So let's see how we get there. John chapter 2, verse 1. Crack your Bibles. Let's go to John. We're going to be here for a while. John chapter 2, verse 1. Starts out like this. On the third day, third day of what? Well, we don't know exactly, but most people think it's the third day after he was baptized by John the Baptist. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, that little insignificant ordinary town. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, what? When the wine ran out, that never happens. This passage makes it sound so normal. Oh, you know, we're at the Jewish wedding, the wine ran out, but we just kept dancing. It makes it sound normal, but it's anything but normal. Remember, this never happens at a Jewish wedding. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. All right, so I'm just going to clear up some emails in my inbox this week. Did Jesus sass his mother with this? In the English, it sounds like it, right? It's like, Jesus, or mother, woman, like, this isn't for me right now. But is that what it actually is saying? So the, the Greek word that we say woman is actually just gune. It's just gune. It's just a blanket term for woman. Could be positive, could be negative. It doesn't say right there with it. But we know how Jesus has used this word throughout his gospel. In John 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he calls out to his mother, and he says, Woman, behold your son. Gune, behold your son. And then he gives care of Mary to his beloved disciple John. It's a very endearing term for Jesus to be calling this to his mother. And he doesn't use the word mother, meter, he just uses the word woman. Because in this culture it shows that he's no longer a little boy in his mommy's house who has to obey everything he says, or that she says. But she, he's still going to honor her as, as a man honors a woman. And he says, most highly favored woman, my hour has not yet come. So that's what's going on here. So what else do we discover in these four, first four verses? What do we discover? We discover adversity. So what is adversity? Sometimes adversity is really hard. You get a phone call from your husband who's on the mainland, and he's in the ER because he fell out of a tree and he needs back surgery. And you're in Hawaii, and you've got to figure out what to do with your two kids, and do you go to Colorado, and you can't even ask your husband because he's doped up on narcotics. <laughs> That's adversity. You can ask my wife. Sometimes adversity is painful. You go through an ugly divorce. You have a long custody battle, and you don't win. You miss your kids. That's adversity. Adversity is you go on another business trip, and your, your, your kid says, where's daddy for my soccer game? I miss him. That's adversity. Adversity is having a great, great healthy family, then all of a sudden you take your daughter to the doctor's because she's got a cold, and the doctor says, hey, this is more than a cold. 
And then you enter into years of having to take your daughter to the doctors trying to fix this thing. Adversity's hard. Sometimes, adversity's a little easier. It's New Year's Eve. You want to go to town to see the fireworks, but you're still alone. So instead, you, you're going to snuggle up to binge-watching Netflix. Before you do, go to Foodland, walk to that magic frosted glass door. You open it, you get that cold billow of air, and you look, and there's no dryer, slow-churn cookie dough ice cream. Ah! That's real adversity. I'm glad you guys remembered. <laughs> to some, waking up with a crying baby may not sound that hard. To me, the first time I did it five years ago with my son Truett, I had this beautiful Hallmark dad moment. It's like it's in the movies, I'm patting Truett on the back, my beautiful wife sleeping. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. And five years into it, three kids. And I know those kids, before we go to bed, true, it's like, okay, Amaris, you wake up every 15 minutes. Brave, you take midnight and four. Go potty, fall out of your bed, whatever it is. Me, I'll wake up at two, crying because of a bad dream. That'll keep them up. <laughs> Adversity's tough sometimes. <laughs> Adversity is the difference between a major surgery and a minor surgery. It's major when it happens to you. To us, running out of wine seems like a minor thing. Grand scheme of eternity? Probably is. But to the couple at this Jewish wedding, it was everything. They would have been known their entire lives as the couple that ran out of wine. It would have marred their marriage. Wine was a, a symbol of their joy and their celebration, and they didn't have any. So the first time I taught this passage to the youth group a few months ago, I taught that the crux of this passage was the human problem of no wine. As I keep rereading this passage, I see that there's a greater story going on. Instead of a man-centered way to view this, it's actually a God-centered event that's happening. And we see this at the end of verse 4. Let's look at Jesus' words, end of verse 4. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So while we see adversity here, we suddenly realize it's not just about this Jewish wedding running out of wine. Jesus is pairing this to his hour, his big hour, something that's important. So what is his hour? And when's it coming? Well, let's flip to the right a little bit in our Bibles. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 23, 24, and we're going to tag it with verse 32. Here, John is recording the events that happened three years after the water-to-wine miracle. It's just after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He presents himself as Messiah to the Jewish nation. It's just before his last supper, and Jesus is knowingly walking toward his crucifixion in Jerusalem. And he says these words here, John 12, verse 23. Jesus says, The hour has come. Contrast that three years earlier, John 2, the hour has not come. Now all of a sudden, the hour has come. Hour has come for what? He tells us, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus' hour is about his glory. Jesus' hour is about his glory. And he goes on to say how it's going to be revealed. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus went through adversity. Now is his moment of glory. 
in his brutal crucifixion on the cross, in his glorious resurrection from the dead three days later, and his invitation of salvation to all mankind, Jesus reveals his glory fully. And so here in John chapter 2, when he says, hey, my hour has not yet come, he's saying, I'm going to reveal my glory in full later. But right now, let me just give you a little glimpse of my glory. And he's going to do it through the small adversity of the no wine. Mary doesn't see all this. We see it because we see it in hindsight. Mary doesn't. So she goes on in verse 5 and she says this, John 2, 5. His mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Boom, she just drops a trust bomb on the situation. She says, I trust Jesus completely. He's got this. He's going to fix this. You can trust him too. So whatever he says, go and do it. Mary trusts in Jesus. And you and I, we see that it's in this moment of trust that Jesus' glory will be revealed throughout the rest of the story. Your trust in adversity reveals Christ's glory. But your trust in adversity isn't the only way you can reveal his glory. Truth number two, the second way you can reveal Christ's glory, your obedience in the mundane reveals Christ's glory. Your obedience in the mundane reveals Christ's glory. To partner with God to reveal his glory, you must be faithful in the normal, in the ordinary, in the boring. Let's continue in our story. John chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Let's pause there. Because these aren't just any stone water pots. These are water pots according to the manner of purification of the Jews. What is that? Well, in the, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's about 400 years of Jewish history that's going on. And these, this group rose up called the Pharisees, and they were making all these Jewish regulations about how to remain clean and holy and pious so everybody would be like, oh, wow, you are so clean and holy and pious. And part of that was they would have all these ceremonial washing ceremonies. And so before they ate, after they left someplace unclean, they would pour water, they'd wash their hands, they'd wash their feet. Before they ate, they would wash their cups with it. There was lots of water to to show themselves as, hey, I'm clean. But this was just a man-made thing on the outside that had nothing to do with the inside, their heart condition. And that's what these water pots were used. And this was such a big deal. There was six of them. This was a lot of water being used, and all the guests would have already had their hands and feet washed, and there was no water left in them. So let's keep reading. Verse 6. These stone pots contained 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. Do I have any math lovers out there? You guys already done the math? Six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. 120 to 180 gallons of water. We'll say 180 gallons because it makes for a better story. That's a lot of water that these guys have to fill up. How are they going to do it? It's ancient Israel 2,000 years ago. Do they have a hose and a spigot? They can stand there and fill it up? Maybe. Me and Pastor Perry were talking. He reminded me the Romans had aqueducts all over their empire. They would take the water from a a higher elevation and and run it down at a a shallow grade until it came into somebody's house or villa. They had running water back then. 
but did they have it in a small, ordinary town we have no record of? That obviously there were Jews there because there was a Jewish wedding. Would they spend their resources to bring running water there? We have no idea. It, it's not recorded if, if they did or not. But if they didn't, which is, I think, a good conjecture, how'd they get their water? Well, they'd have to walk to the closest well with their bucket. Was it in the center of town? Was it five, ten minute walk away? Maybe. And they would lower a bucket 100 feet down. They'd fill up with water. They'd raise it back up 100 feet. Then they'd have to walk back to their villa, maybe tripping on rocks and getting water spilled on them, and then dump the water into these water pots. Okay, I guess i got to go do that again. And they would be doing it again and again and again. So either way, if they had running water, it was an easy job, kind of boring to, to sit there filling up water pots. Or... If it was a well, it was a hard, long, laborious task before them. And I'm sure they were asking themselves, why are we doing this? It didn't even make sense. They had a problem, no wine. Okay, fill up water jugs so people can wash their hands again? Like, this seems like there's no connection here. How can this be what, what God wants to do? No connection. Maybe you're asking yourself that same question in your life. God, how can me waking up at 4.30 for work every day really be what you've called me to? I don't even see my kids until the weekend. Or God, how can me texting a friend again and again really make a difference in her life? Is that really what you want me to do, God? Or at my house, God, how can cooking another dinner really be that important? Couldn't we just do it every other day? Can you change things? Yeah, we ask that question a lot at our house. We'll sign a petition, take it up with God. <laughs> These servants were asked to do a task. It may have been easy and boring, or it may have been hard and challenging and long. Definitely didn't make sense. So who were these lucky servants that got to fill up these water pots? Who were they? Well, we see in English the word servants. In Greek, we see the word diakonos. Diakonos. Hmm, I've heard that one before. Oh yeah, it means deacon. We get our word deacon from it. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, calls himself a diakonos in Colossians 1. The word can also be, be translated as minister. Be translated as minister. So these, these servants, these diakonoses, they could be free men volunteering for the job of service, doing this at this party. Or the word does still allow for them to be slaves and, and true servants who don't have a choice in the, in the matter. So either they're, they're volunteering servants or they're slave servants and they have no choice. And oftentimes in life, when we get a task put before us, sometimes we have a choice. Okay, God, you're putting this service project on my heart. I know I should reach out to my neighbor. Am I going to do it or not? Maybe. It's a choice you have. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Your spouse gets a surprise deployment, and you're going to be at home taking care of the kids for six months. No choice. Or you go to the doctors, and, and they tell your husband that, that that lump that they biopsied, it's got to have radiation. And so you're going to be driving your husband to the doctors every day for the next couple of weeks getting radiation. There's no choice there. That's how we go through life. These servants, were they free? Were they slaves? Was it an easy job? Was it a hard job? We don't know. But let's see what they did. John chapter 2, verse 7. We'll look at the last part of that verse. John 2, 7 says, 
and they filled them up to the brim. They filled them up to the brim. Now remember, John is writing this story for a reason. He wants you to believe in Jesus and to have life in his name. And so he gives us this little detail here that he doesn't have to, but he wants us to know how obedient they were to Christ's words. And they were obedient to his words fully. But first they needed to know what he said. All they had was five words of Christ. Fill the water pots with water. Five words. That's all they had to be obedient to. And they were obedient to them to a T. Today you sit here with 782,815 words of Christ in this book. And Jesus has given you a task. Maybe an easy one, but it's boring. Maybe a hard one. It takes a while. You may have a choice. You may not. But you're filling the buckets. And you're filling them to a brim. You might be a mom. It's another day of blowouts. You're trying to squeeze in homeschool. Maybe you're sitting in traffic on the H3 or the poly two times a day. But you're going through life, and Jesus has called you to something. And you have a choice to make. Your obedience in the mundane reveals Christ's glory. All right, quick review. We got two things. We got first way you reveal his glory, your trust in adversity reveals his glory. Second way, your obedience in the mundane reveals Christ's glory. So third, last way you're invited to reveal his glory that we see in this passage. Your dependence on God's power reveals Christ's glory. Your dependence on God's power reveals Christ's glory. God's glory is revealed as you rely on his strength. You see, so far in the story, we only have 180 gallons of water sitting in water pots ready to clean people's hands. Simple, plain, boring wash water. It's not a miracle. There's no good story there. Might as well not even read it if nothing happens. But something does happen. Let's see what happens. John 2, verses 8 through 10. Let's read that. Jesus said to the servants, the ministers, the diakonoses, draw some out now. Take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Apparently, Jesus makes really good wine. But it's only by Jesus' power did that simple wash water turn into amazingly flavorful wine. The power of the miracle wasn't from Mary's trust. The power of the miracle wasn't from the obedience of the servants. The power of the miracle was only found in Jesus Christ. It's the only time that a miracle happens is in the power of Jesus Christ. But... And that word that changes everything. Jesus has invited you to participate in a miracle. Through the adversity, through the mundane, Jesus invites you into it and to reveal his glory. Which miracle are you participating in? So I was in college. Uh, I had a very, very pretty girlfriend. She was madly in love with me, madly in love with the Lord. So I married her. She's sitting back there. That was 10 years ago. But... 
I know, I made you worried. You're like, oh, it's awkward. <laughs> but me and Liz used to like go, to go running. And so we'd run on the college track. And, and afterwards, I, I looked at her shoe. We were stretching and embroidered on her shoe was something I hadn't seen before. It was a Bible verse, Colossians 3, 23, and 24. So I, I couldn't pull out my smartphone. We didn't have them back then. But I went back to my dorm room and I opened up the good old-fashioned Bible. And I looked up the verse. So let's do it right now. Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And it says this. Whatever you do, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you're a working professional, you're in the military, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance. You'll receive an inheritance. What inheritance did Mary and the servants receive in our story? Let's go back and see. Go to John chapter 2, verse 11. John 2, verse 11. End of our story. What inheritance did Mary and the servants receive? This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The inheritance they received was seeing Jesus' glory. The head waiter, he didn't get that. He didn't see the glory. He had no idea what was going on. The bridegroom, he didn't know. The guests, they had no clue. The only people that saw Jesus' glory were the ones that participated, the ones who went through the hardship, the ones who went through the mundane, the boring, the ordinary, and they saw Christ's glory. So what's your inheritance? We're each participating in a miracle. No one may see that, that you go every day and take care of your sick auntie, but that's your invitation to Christ's glory. No one else may see you on those cold nights of training up in the field on the big island. And it's mundane and, and cold. Although it's not really that mundane when you see things blow up. But it's your invitation to glory. No one may see you figuring out how to pay the bills as they keep coming in and you're on a fixed income, but you want to keep your house so that your kids and your grandkids can come home for the holidays. You can have special family time. But that's your invitation to Christ's glory. As you trust Jesus through your, your adversity, as you fill up your water pots to the brim in the mundane, what will your inheritance be? You know, we have an amazing worship pastor here, my friend, Pastor Josh, and he wrote the song that he sang during the offering. And as I was writing the sermon, I, that song just kept coming back in my mind. I'm like, why is this song stuck in my head? And so I started singing it, and, and I remembered that it was a, a quote from Colossians chapter 3. So we're going to look at our last Bible verse today. Colossians 3, verse 4. It comes from his song. The Lord is speaking it to me as I was writing this. Colossians 3, verse 4. says this. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will be revealed in glory. You will be revealed in glory. Your inheritance is that you too will be revealed in Christ's glory. Jesus is inviting you to partner with him in bringing about a miracle in your life. 
And it's going to happen in the ordinary, in the hard, in the boring, in the mundane. But you're going to fill up those water pots to the brim. What water pots has Jesus asked you to fill this week? Let's pray. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, it's a private moment between you and Jesus. And this sign miracle was written so that you would believe in him and that by believing you would have life in his name. Perhaps you're here, you've never done that. This is Jesus' invitation to you, saying, would you believe in me? Would you come to life by saying something like, Jesus, I have messed up, I've done wrong, I'm sorry. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead for me. Thank you. Or maybe you're here and, and it's just another hard, boring day. Maybe it's the same thing and you're wondering, how is this making a difference for the kingdom? You've been invited into his miracle. Would you pray something like this? Say, Jesus, would you give me your strength by your Holy Spirit to continue through the mundane, to continue through the adversity, to bring about your miracle and reveal your glory on this earth. Thank you for inviting me into that, Jesus. Amen. Just some words from 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 58. My beloved brothers and sisters, may you be steadfast, may you be immovable, may you be abounding in the work of the Lord, and may you know that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He sees you. It's worth it. In Jesus' name. Amen.